Well, this morning we had the joy of highlighting the cross of Christ, the theological center of our Christian faith. But what is the central activity of the church that's saved by the work of the cross? Or to put it this way, why did we spend the money that God gave to you to give back to him in order to work on this wonderful facility? Why did we do that? Or I could ask the question this way. We have several phases of this remodel. Grant mentioned that earlier. Why was our phase one our worship space, our sanctuary? It's been said that this building is like a Christian, not so good on the outside, but great on the inside. Why not make the outside look better first and then worry about the inside? Why, why not make uh, the, the, the parking lot better? Why not do anything else? Why did we make this particular room our sole focus? We've been enjoying the remarkable hymns of our faith. What I'd like to show you is some key concepts associated with the gathering of God's people to worship. And I guess think of this kind of like a taste test where we're just going to take a small bite out of a lot of different concepts. And to help us do this, to illustrate these concepts about the gathered worship of God's people, turn with me to 1 Chronicles 22. 1 Chronicles 22, it's those pages in your Old Testament that are a little crisper. Maybe you haven't been there in a while. And let me get you caught up where we are historically, because this is a really exciting time in in the history of Israel. One of the most exciting, really, in all of their history in 1 Chronicles 22, we're coming upon a time very late in King David's reign. In fact, before we're done this evening, King David will have gone home to be with the Lord. But the Lord has ordained his son Solomon to build the permanent temple of God in Jerusalem. David is not allowed to do that by God, and we'll see how he explains that. But he's going to do all he can in preparation at least. Now, just to be very clear... We're good dispensationalists here. We're not Israel. We did not build a temple. The church is the temple of God. Now, we are the temple. The church is the temple. We are those indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But we have much we can learn from this momentous occasion of the very first permanent place on earth to worship God. And what I'd like to do is just give you a list, kind of a taste test, as I said, of these key concepts, and they're in related pairs. And you'll see what I mean in a moment. And by doing this, what we're going to do is just kind of get a a quick and broad theology of the gathered worship of God's people. Why are we here together? First key concept, we'll call mind and heart. Mind and heart. King David calls for his son Solomon. First Chronicles 22, look with me at verse 6. Then he called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord, my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. In Hebrew, it means peace. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. 
And so David blesses Solomon and he encourages him. And he ends this encouragement with a classic statement on worship. Look at the very end of chapter 22, and we'll be walking through a number of chapters. The very end of chapter 22, verse 19, this classic statement on worship. David says to Solomon, now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God. I wonder if there's anybody on earth who's ever walked the earth who is more qualified to tell anyone to set their mind and set their hearts on the Lord than King David. David is the author of basically half of the Psalms. He is uniquely qualified to instruct us in worship, isn't he? He told Solomon to set his heart and his mind to seek God. Have you ever read about this in other places in Scripture? Jesus said it a different way. He said that we are to worship in spirit, that's the heart, and in truth. That is the mind engaging with the revelation of God through his word. Our worship cannot, it must not be a mundane exercise in merely showing up. God is not pleased with that, and he knows when we do that. Every believer has an obligation to come to worship prepared in heart and in mind. It's something we prepare to do. You don't roll out of bed on a Sunday morning and say, "Ah, I think I'll worship today. We prepare by prayer. We prepare in confession. We Prepare by having a learner's attitude of being eager to take in the truth and eager to express the truth in song. So we have this concept of mind and heart. Another key concept we'll call sacrifice and proclamation. Sacrifice and proclamation. In chapter 23, Solomon is made king over Israel. In verse 1, in, in the first of a couple of formal ceremonies, this is not the last time we'll see this, And in one of his very last acts, David organizes all the leadership of Israel, including all involved in worship, 38,000 men total involved in running the worship of God. And we see two major focal points of their worship. Chapter 23, verse 13. Chapter 23, verse 13. The sons of Amram, Aaron, and Moses. Aaron was set apart to dedicate the most holy things that he and his sons forever should make offerings before the Lord and minister to him and pronounce blessings in his name forever. Two focal points, sacrifice and proclamation. I want to consider the second one first, proclamation. You notice a key phrase here, minister to him. Our ministry is to the Lord. Our worship is to the Lord. It's not for us to try to design a worship service that is man-centered, designed to please people. It's to the Lord. And one of the key ways we worship, he says here, is to pronounce blessings in his name. That we extol and we describe and we speak aloud, we sing aloud the glories of God. A, A pastor recently said that we don't want to burden the church with too much theology. That's silly. That's all we have. We sing theology. We, we extol the name of the Lord. And just like Israel, our worship is based in the first focal point, sacrifice. Christ is our once for all sacrifice, but the cross hanging on the wall behind me reminds us that we may never truly worship God without the intervention of the cross. Never. It's only by the blood of Christ does true worship happen, which is why it's so silly to try to invite unbelievers to worship. You can invite them to come watch us worship, but they cannot worship God. 
So worship that's devoid of acknowledgement of the gospel goes off track. There's another key concept in our taste test of gathered worship. We'll call this leadership and administration. Leadership and administration. David now organizes all the priests in service at the temple. Chapter 24, verse 3. With the help of Zadok of the sons of Eleazar and Ahimelech, the sons of Ithamar, David organized them according to the appointed duties in their service. And then the rest of chapter 24 reads like the boring minutes of a church elders meeting. It just lists all these personnel and you wonder why does God put that level of boredom in chapter 24? Well, he's telling us something. He's telling us that the worship of God happens on the backs of qualified leadership and administration of all that encompasses worship. You should rightly expect all of your shepherds to be engaged in and qualified as spiritual leaders. But all of us also, myself much less than all the others, but all of us do seemingly mundane tasks, which supports the all-important duty to worship God. You would not believe the level of boredom of meetings that we had behind the scenes to make this building happen. We had to go through numbers, and, and the other elders know when we start going through numbers, I lose interest. I fall asleep, and so we leave that to them. But we just had to go through mundane things, which are now being seen in the fruit of this facility because of their leadership and their administration. There's another key concept, which is the entire excuse I had for doing this message tonight. We'll call music and instruction. Music and instruction. I mentioned chapter 25 just a couple of weeks ago, but it's so instructive for us that our worship is woven together musically. That is an important part. It's not just a part of our worship. It is an integral part of our worship. Chapter 25, verse 1. David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jejuthun, who prophesied with lyres and with harps and with cymbals. Now, I know those seem like old-fashioned musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. Let me translate that for you in modern terms, guitars, pianos, and drums. That's exactly what those are. They're just turned on a different side. That's all. All a harp is is a piano that doesn't have hammers. Guitars, pianos, drums. And did you notice here, what a gift to Israel. God gave them some particularly musical families to lead the way. And it reads like a program at a symphony orchestra concert, to be honest with you. Chapter 25, verse 2. Of the sons of Asaph, Zakur, Joseph, Nethaniah, and Asherah, sons of Asaph, under the direction of Asaph. It sounds like a program, doesn't it? Look at verse 3 of Jejuthun, the sons of Jejuthun, Gedaliah, Zeri, Jeshiah, Shemai, Hashabiah, and Mattathiah. Six, under the direction of their father, Jejuthun. It's like an orchestra concert. And in fact, probably the winner of the families would be the family of Heman, the writer of Psalm 88. His family was huge, 14 sons, three daughters. Look at verse 6. They were all under the direction of their father in the music in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres for the service of the house of God. Asaph, Jejuthun, and Heman were under the order of the king. That's the music, but what about the instruction? Verse 7, the number of them along with their brothers who were trained in singing to the Lord, all who were skillful, was 288. These were all the singing and the instrumental instructors 
the directors of various combinations of music groups. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that they were to rotate in once a year for just over two weeks in groups of 12. And if you do the math, that's 288 music directors, 288 music teachers to teach God's people. Now, what does that say about the importance of music worship? Well, it says two things. First of all, it says that music worship is worth working at. It's worth investing in. I'm so thankful that we made a call for a choir and and a couple dozen more of you answered that call. And we've enjoyed that even this evening. It's worth working at. It's worth investing in. And this says one other thing, and that is that music is for all the believers, led by many believers. The music worship of the church is never meant to be a superstar event with one star of the show. It is for many leading the all. And I think that this is a dying thought in the church. The music should be one of our biggest investments. It's a huge investment. Let us at Grace Bible Church make our musical proclamation what this chapter incidentally calls prophesying, the exclamation of the greatness of God in song. Let us make that a massively important priority. And you know what that does? It demonstrates what we really think of the gospel. What do we really think of the gospel when we have as many musicians as possible participating? It says that the gospel is great and it's grand and it's high and it's glorious. And people say, well, we shouldn't worry about musical preferences. And that is true to a certain degree. But you know how many instruments the Bible prescribes for use in worship? All of them. All of them. Another key concept A few of you are going to say, yay, finally, acknowledgement, protection and service, protection and service. Look at chapter 26, verse one. As for the divisions of the gatekeepers of the Korahites, Meshelamiah, the son of Korah, of the sons of Asaph. And then verse 12 of chapter 26, these divisions of the gatekeepers corresponding to their chief men had duties just as their brothers did ministering in the house of the Lord. What was the duty of a gatekeeper? 4,000 of them. So it must be important. The duty of the gatekeeper was to occupy the gatehouses that led to the entrance to the temple complex. Now, why gatekeepers? It's very simple. Because God inhabits the praises of his people and Satan hates it when that happens. Satan hates the worship of God's people, and historically has always tried to disrupt worship. What were the gatekeepers for? They were there to guard the sanctity and the focus of worship. They provided protection, and in doing so, they did service to the Lord. Now, how does that apply to us? I know this is a difficult concept for us in a consumer-run society, but our worship service is not a public event. Are you aware of that? It is not a public event. It's not open to anyone who wants to come. It is open to anyone who wants to come and behave themselves. It's open to anyone who wants to come who's not a detriment. But ultimately, our worship consists of the faithful believers gathering in unity to worship the Lord. And it's interesting, as I read this chapter, now we have a literal gate. And we have real gatekeepers, our security team. And they serve exactly the same purposes as the gatekeepers of Solomon's day to guard the sanctity and the focus of worship in Christ. So thank a security team member today and join the security team today because we have a lot more needs. 
In fact, if we looked at, Psalm, at, at chapter 27, rather, we don't have time to, it's devoted to describing the entire military force. What was the military force of Israel for? It wasn't just to protect the nation. It was primarily to protect the temple and to protect the worship of God. That was the value of that team of 4,000. Here's another key concept, and we'll put these two together. We call it value and courage. Value and courage. In chapter 28, David assembles all the leadership of Israel to charge them to seek the Lord, to obey his commands. In chapter 28, verses 9 and 10, he gives a personal charge to his son Solomon to serve God with a whole heart and a willing mind again. Now, keep in mind, at this point, temple construction hasn't even begun yet. This is all preparation. But now David hands over the plans. Chapter 28, verse 11. Then David gave Solomon his son the plan of the vestibule of the temple and of its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms and its inner chambers and of the room for the mercy seat and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God, and the treasuries for dedicated gifts. And then in verses 13 through 19, I won't take time to read it, the tremendous wealth and elegance and opulence of temple trappings and accessories is described here. And it seems that every fourth word is either gold or silver. I'd refer you ahead to Second Chronicles 3. We don't have time to go there, but it describes the actual building of the temple and it's nothing short of stunning. No structure like it has ever been made. And in chapter 4 of Second Chronicles, it describes the furnishings of the temple. I mean, you have chairs and tables that are, that are inlaid with gold. I, it, gold was just normal in the temple. Gold and silver, it was, it was monumental. Now, what does that tell us? Now, obviously, it's not a design guide for a local church in the 21st century. We didn't come to you saying that we're, we'd like to raise $10 billion for our sanctuary so that we can inlay everything with gold. It's, it's not a design guide. But it does speak to the value of worship. It speaks to the fact that the place in which we meet should be tended to, cared for, looked after. And why is that? Because the worship of God is not something for the faint of heart. Worship of God is something that we not only value, but it's an act of courage. It's an act of courage because you're defying the world. You're defying its systems. You're defying Satan and his schemes. And you're asking for trouble, which Jesus promised that you will get. And so the value of worship is accompanied by courage. Look at chapter 28, verse 20. Chapter 28, verse 20. Then David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Why is courage necessary? Because God's people have always created enemies. How is it that we create enemies? We create enemies by worshiping God. A a worshipless Christian, if there is such a thing, a worshipless Christian is no threat to Satan. And therefore, it is our worship that is a threat and it creates enemies. It's another key concept in our taste test of worship ideas. We'll call this concept giving and joy. Giving and joy. In chapter 29, verses 1 through 5, David outlines how he had set aside materials, set aside treasures for the building of the temple, and he lists a vast amount of gold and silver from his own wealth that he's giving. And what's his reason? It is love for God. 
Chapter 29, verse 3 says, Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. There is reason to believe that David, well, we know he became very wealthy. The record of his death says that that was the case. But there is reason to believe that what he is doing in one of his final acts on earth is to give every penny he has personally to the temple. What a great way to go. What a great way to go home. So generous, so grand. And he issues a challenge. In verse 5, And for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver... And in one last act of leadership, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? What an act of leadership. And so following David's example, verse 6, Then the leaders of fathers' houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. And verses 7 and 8 lists a massive amount of wealth given for the temple. And what did this giving cause? Verse 9, then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. And now David prays a prayer concerning their giving that is so theologically precise, so humble, it's so rich. Listen to this prayer, chapter 29, verse 10. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? Here is his theology. For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. You notice what he calls the house of God, a palace. A palace. Free and wholehearted giving to the worship of God creates joy. Now we have to take just a momentary detour right here to point out an extremely important messianic note. All that David has done in his power to prepare for the building of the temple 
All our thoughts are now elevated further as Solomon is enthroned. Chapter 29, verse 22, the second half of verse 22. This is the second of these ceremonies. And they made Solomon the son of David king the second time, and they anointed him as prince for the Lord and Zadok as priest. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of David his father, and he prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. All the leaders and the mighty men, and also all the sons of King David, pledged their allegiance to King Solomon. And the Lord made Solomon very great in the sight of all Israel, and bestowed on him such royal majesty as has not been on any king before him in Israel. Here's the detour. This is so important. Now, all of a sudden, the worship of God is heavily associated with the anointing of a king descended from David. And in a brief glimpse of a preview of the coming kingdom of Christ, we know this in verse 23, that all Israel obeyed him. And we see in verse 25, such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. Now, worship is associated with a Davidic king. And the chronicler now records with reverence and respect the death of David, chapter 29, verse 28. Then he died at a good age, full of days, riches, and honor. And Solomon, his son, reigned in his place. And now, after that detour, we get back to our key concepts, our taste test of important ideas around the gathered worship of God's people. Another key concept we'll call favor and help. Favor and help, Second Chronicles 1, verse 1. Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, and the Lord as God was with him and made him exceedingly great. Solomon prays for wisdom in his famous prayer, and he's promised to be the wisest man who ever lived. And because God was pleased with this request, in, in verses 11 and 12, God also says that not only will you have wisdom, but you'll also have wealth and honor and peace and power. This is a very important lesson for us. Solomon's priorities were right on track. The priority of worshiping God and seeking the knowledge of God. And what was the result? God's blessing. I get asked this question by young pastors sometimes. How can I ensure God's blessing on our church? Well, there's no way to ensure worldly success, but there is a way to ensure God's blessing, and that is that your priority is always to worship. That's the priority. If our priority is always the worship of God, seeking the knowledge of God, then we know whatever God chooses to do in his sovereignty, our consciences are clear that we sought the Lord. We don't define success in worldly terms, but simply in terms of faithfulness. And there's tremendous peace there. We'll let God take care of what he desires to do through us. There's another key concept in our taste tests here. We'll call this theology and space. Theology in space, temple construction finally begins. And Solomon reveals his motive. Chapter 2, verse 5 of Second Chronicles. His motive is this. The house that I am to build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. That's his motive. This reflects a less emphasized aspect of our worship thoughts very often. That is the concept of sacred space. A space devoted to to worshiping God based on our theology of the greatness of God. Yes, absolutely, Jesus said that we're to worship in spirit and in truth. And he said that in the new covenant era, worship isn't restricted to the temple of God, but to anywhere God's people are. But don't mistake the ability to worship God anywhere 
for an abandonment of the idea of sacred space. If we had time, we could take many months of sermons to trace the development of sacred space devoted to the worship of God. And it goes from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. The early church met in the temple complex in Jerusalem. They wanted to be in a sacred space. After two and a half centuries of persecution, finally abating somewhat, what's the first thing that the ancient church did immediately when it was legal to be a Christian finally for after 250 years? First thing they started doing was building sacred spaces, building church buildings. And so our theology of the greatness of God drives us to devote a space meant to lift up the name of our God. It's another key concept, and we crescendo now toward the end And we skip ahead to chapter 5. And this concept we'll call glory and presence. Glory and presence. Chapter 5 records the building of the Ark of the Covenant, which held the stone tablets of God's covenant with Israel, the Ten Commandments. And Solomon was so mindful that God alone received glory and honor. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 6. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Incidentally, this event here is recorded other places in Scripture and with specific numbers. And it's been calculated that a sacrifice was happening every three seconds for 12 hours. Solomon is mindful that God alone received glory and honor. And when the priests brought the ark into the most holy place, the innermost chamber of the temple, look with me at chapter 5, verse 12. And all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison, in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Wow. And in one of the greatest prayers in all the Bible, Solomon dedicates the temple in chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. And he says that he has built a house for God on earth. But his theology is solid. Chapter 6, verse 18. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen from heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Our gathering together here is to be an act of giving glory to God. There is no other reason of enjoying his presence. And yet, of course, acknowledging that the highest heaven cannot contain God. Let me ask you a new covenant question here. Why is the presence of the Lord particularly special, it seems, when we gather together? 
It's because we're the first people of God in all of history to every single person being dwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so our worship gathering is a consecrated dose, as it were. It's a concentration. All the people of whom God has promised to indwell with His Spirit gathered together And yes, we are the temple of God on earth, and anywhere we are, we can worship. But when we gather together, it's something special. I don't know. I think being together here is more special than singing Amazing Grace in the aisles of Walmart. That doesn't feel special. Ultimately, the sacred space is anywhere we are because God is here. We have a word over our front door. It's the word sanctuary. Because as we hear, even right now, the world driving by, we gather together for the glory of God. And as God's gathered people, what is the proper way to approach him? One last key concept we'll call fear and thanksgiving. Here's the fear and thanksgiving. Look with me at chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And how does this grand opening of the house of God conclude? Verse 8, At that time Solomon held the feast for seven days, and all Israel with him. Verse 9, And on the eighth day they held a solemn assembly, for they had kept the dedication of the altar seven days, and the feast seven days. On the twenty-third day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their homes, joyful and glad of heart for the prosperity that the Lord had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. I hope you get a sense of the rich depth and the breadth of what it means to gather as God's people. And this isn't the main point of this message, but I do want to finish this evening by just giving a little detail to all of you who have given faithfully, and particularly a detail to encourage the families of those who gave faithfully and yet never saw this building because they went home to be with the Lord. I want to show you one little detail, a little footnote almost. Chapter 7, verse 6. The priests stood at their posts, the Levites also, with the instruments for music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever David offered praises by their ministry, opposite them the priests sounded trumpets and all Israel stood. Did you catch this? David has already died. He's in the presence of the Lord. And yet because the instruments of praise were given by David, the inspired text of scripture says, David offered praises by their ministry, literally in Hebrew, by their hands. They held the trumpets that he made and they offered praises on his behalf and God credits it as if he's there. David wasn't allowed to build the temple, but he was allowed to offer praise even beyond the grave. That in the record books of heaven, David still offers praise on earth because of his efforts to facilitate the worship of God. Does that tell you how important worship is to God? My prayer is that we as a church strive toward a lofty, high standard 
of lifting up the name of our God in this place that we have designated as sacred space. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now in gratitude for this sacred space, in gratitude for what you have done and continue to do. And Lord, of course, it would be an utter waste if it were not spent on the joy of worshiping you and giving you glory and giving you praise. And it would be another waste if it were not spent on proclaiming the cross of Christ and pleading the gospel. Oh Lord, we pray that this little sacred space that you have given us would be the gateway to eternal life for many, many people. That in this very room, the gospel would be proclaimed and sung and prayed and thought through such that the lost walk through our doors and hear the gospel of Christ and the Holy Spirit regenerates them and brings them to faith. Lord, we pray to use what you have given us for your glory and your glory alone because what makes this sacred space is the fact that you inhabit it. You inhabit it because we are here. May we be worthy, Lord, of what you have given us. May we be faithful And may your kingdom grow and may Christ be honored because of our little efforts here by your power, by your spirit. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.